hppodcraft.com. It is only within the last few years that most people have stopped thinking of the West as a new land. I suppose the idea gained ground because our own especial civilization happens to be new there. But nowadays explorers are digging beneath the surface and bringing up whole chapters of life that rose and fell among these plains and mountains before recorded history began. We think nothing of a Pueblo village 2,500 years old, and it hardly jolts us when archaeologists put the subpedregal culture of Mexico back to 17,000 or 18,000 BC. We hear rumors of still older things, too, of primitive man contemporaneous with extinct animals and known today only through a few fragmentary bones and artifacts, so that the idea of newness is fading out pretty rapidly. Europeans usually catch the sense of immemorial anxiousness and deep deposits from successive life streams better than we do. Only a couple of years ago, a British author spoke of Arizona as a moon-dim region, very lovely in its way, and stark and old, an ancient, lonely land. All right, well, that's the opening line from Zelia Bishop and H.P. Lovecraft's The Mound. That uh, reader was Jimmy Aiken, a friend of the show, who uh, is actually sort of an expert on The Mound. He's an all-around fascinating guy, and um, we'll put some links up to his site. He's done some extensive studies, and he provided us a link to photographs of locations. Yeah. And we've got those up there, and they're pretty cool to look at, so you can see you know, what's being discussed. Wait, what are we discussing this on, Chad? Uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Oh, at hppodcraft.com. That's right. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Did and I say I'm Chris, that? Yeah, no, you didn't say that. I'm, I'm Chris Lackey. <laughs> and uh, glad to be back. Yeah. We have a couple of things to cover before we jump into the story here. I just wanted to throw out there once again that we've now got the soundtrack from the show Volume 2 available. Yeah, it's out, folks. It's out for a donation of $10. We'll send you a digital download of that. And if you send 15 or more, we'll get you that as well as the first one if you didn't get it the first time around. Yep. The recordings of From Beyond and The Picture in the House are recorded. They're sounding really good. We're still mixing the down. Got to finish them off, but those will be coming out soon. As always, there's merchandise in our store at Cafe Press. There's some new designs there. Uh, uh, Mike Mann did a new, new t-shirt design. Did you see that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it looks like a, a chemical symbol from the periodic table of elements, and it says I-A with the little umlaut over the eye like yeah you know that whole thing <laughs> it's pretty cool yeah it's and, good uh, and then we have a big announcement oh week. yeah we do um, well, if anybody who looks at the site will see already have seen this up but we uh, if you recall a few months ago we are looking for an illustrator for a comic book project that Chad and I were doing well, we've got a lot of great submissions from a lot of really talented artists, but we have teamed up with one artist in particular. Yes, that's right. Ian Colbert, who is a graphic novel artist of some repute now. He did, he yeah. recently did uh, for Self-Made Hero an adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness that Absolutely, is getting great yeah. reviews. Yeah. yeah, it's great. It's a great uh, graphic novel. And he's done a number of uh, Sherlock Holmes graphic novels, such as A Study in Scarlet. I mean, his work is just really incredible. And yeah. uh, this is a film script that Chris and I wrote together a couple of years ago. It's in the mythos, uh, sort of Malou, and he read it and he liked it, and, and we like his style, and he's an all-around good guy, so we're, we're doing it, folks. Yeah, it's happening. And if you want to see the first three pages, uh, go to our website. There'll be a link on there and uh, kind of bios on the characters. And, um, you know, as it's as it's progressing further, we'll keep keep you informed about it. Yeah, it's uh, we don't know, you know, when it's going to be done or, or how it's going to be out or who's distributing it or anything like that. But but we're working on it. And it's going to be good stuff. 
really happy about that. Absolutely. Also, uh, we have our article about good old HP Lovecraft in Bizarre Magazine, so you can uh, check that out. That should be available yeah. on newsstands now. Yeah, it just came out this week. And um, one last thing, and this is not coming up for a while, but Pelgrane Press, which is a company that publishes RPGs like Gumshoe, is that their big game? Yeah, well, Gumshoe, what they... It's a system that they use, and they also, mm. but they do Trail of Cthulhu, which friend of the show uh, Ken Height wrote. Well, they've got a new fiction imprint uh, called Stone Skin Press, and they're doing a lot of different new heroes. It's it's real like good pulp fun stuff, and they've got an anthology coming up later this year called Shotguns versus Cthulhu. And Chris and I both contributed short stories to that collection, so we did indeed. That'll be published, I think, in the fourth quarter this year, and you can read them and then you know go online and say how terrible that they were, <laughs> uh, or. <laughs> or celebrate them, whatever you want to do. Yeah, whatever you want to do. You it's, know, uh... we wrote some short fiction, so we're going under the microscope ourselves. Yes, exactly. I know. So you can <laughs> do your podcast about us and, and uh, rip our stuff. <laughs> yeah, rip our stuff, anyone. Because I have to admit, uh, I kind of want to do that with The Mound, getting back oh. to the subject of today's show. I really, really didn't like the story. And it makes me feel terrible because this is my first time reading it. But a lot of people, after we'd done The Curse of Yig, which is the first collaboration, yeah. Uh, that Lovecraft did with Zelia. I really liked it. I thought that was an outstanding story and yeah. very creepy and interesting and novel. So I was approaching this very excited. Just from what I heard from different listeners of the show, they said, oh, wait till you get to the mound. I couldn't have been more bored by this story. I just didn't like it. Now, hold on. Um, there's some really interesting ideas in here and there's some cool stuff and I'm not going to just sit here and, and tear it down the whole time. But in general, I didn't, didn't like it and I feel bad that I didn't like it. I really enjoyed the first part of the, the first chapter is great. I was riveted yeah. and so excited about reading it. I felt like I found a new Lovecraftian treasure because I hadn't read this story before either. Mm -hmm. I mean, we'll obviously talk about it. It kind of gets really boring. And I kept honestly falling asleep while I was reading it. Which... I know. <laughs> I kept coming back to it because I thought maybe this is like when you see a movie and you're in a bad mood. Yeah, no. There's nothing wrong with a movie. It's you. I, I thought maybe this is my fault. But yeah. It sort of reminded me of when I would take the latter part of the story, when I would take these science fiction writing classes when I was a preteen and you'd get everybody's materials and they'd read like, my name is Chikatron from the planet Zuklaka 10. And instead of peanut butter and jelly, we have peanut butter and radium. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> sex is not practiced anymore on my planet, but that was before I became a secret earth agent. Like it's just, it read like not yeah. a story, just a recitation of weird names and and things I've complained about before, like, for example, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath has a lot of these sections that are just descriptions of civilizations and strange place names. But for some reason, that was so surreal and strange. I, well, things here's the thing is uh, a lot of action goes on in that story. In Dream Quest, a lot of right. things happen. You know, he's you know going up here fighting those guys. There's a war. There's, you know, all these in this story. Sure. Almost nothing happens. Yeah, and the things that do happen aren't dramatized in a very interesting way. They're just sort of recited. As well, let's let's yeah, let's let's hold off on our on our ultimate sure. decision. Let's let's get into it. Okay, great. Well, I, I will say the one thing I found immediately interesting about this is that it's the same character, presumably from the Curse of Yig, the American Indian ethnologist who is the protagonist in the Curse of Yig. And that I thought was super cool, and I got very excited. Yeah. And he talks again about Yig early on, and this story takes place in 1928. And and again, this was for who right. I. I'm I'm not sure if she paid him for this story. <laughs> he had some pay payment yeah. issues. But but I thought it was cool that they were bringing back this character. As as I said when we covered The Curse of Yig, I really like the setting of the Old West sort of for Lovecraft's creations. And uh, other characters in this story are from The Curse of Yig, which uh, Jimmy, as I said, he's kind of an expert on the story, and he sent us some information. So I'll just read you what he wrote. He said, not only is the nameless narrator the same person, but Grandma Compton, 
is Sally, Sally Compton, Compton. The, uh, the neighbor woman from Arkansas who visited Audrey and Walker and who found the aftermath of the tragedy. Her son, Clyde, who was mentioned to be an infant in The Curse of Yig, is now grown up and is the narrator's host in the mound. It was Grey Eagle, the Indian chief, who gave Walker info about Yig in the first story, and who gives the narrator the medallion that saves his life, spoiler alert, in the mound. So, uh, yeah, so some of these characters are back from the first story. I love that. It's super cool. I, I got really, that was part of my enjoyment of the first chapter because I'm like, oh, wait, wait a minute, Compton? Compton, that was the name of, and then I went back and looked. I go, oh, yeah, it is. It's the same person. And yeah, it's really cool. Well, let's uh, let's get into it. Uh, first of all, uh, it takes place in, like, like I said, 1928. And this American Indian ethnologist, probably the same guy from the first one. Maybe there's a slew of American Indian ethnologists that are in Oklahoma at the time. And it's a different character. I think there's pretty much no doubt. He makes reference to the fact that he ran into a terrible thing connected with the snake god myth of Yig. So back in 1892, there was this marshal, this guy named John Willis, who was chasing some horse thieves into this Mm -hmm. region. And supposedly he saw like these ghostly Native American guys creeping around, having some kind of battle with each other. And it freaked him out and he didn't know what was going on. And he decided to sort of ask around about it. And that gets us into this myth about how there were these Native American people who are sometimes called those old people, the old people, they who dwell mm-hmm. below, all these different names. And they are not spirits and they're not people, but they're kind of a combination of the two. It says men very old make very big spirit. Not so old, not so big. Older than all time than spirit. He's so big he near flesh. <laughs> Those old people and spirits, they mix up, get all the same. I, I was fascinated anytime there was an Indian explanation of something. In this sort of tanto speak. You know. Tanto speak. Supposedly, the area that this takes place is in this Caddo County, back where our Yig story sort of took place, but in a town called Binger. Binger is also associated with Yig, the serpent god. There's a legend that goes around this mound, story's called, and it goes something like this. The tale, outwardly, was an extremely naive and simple one. It centered on a huge, lone mound or small hill that rose above the plain about a third of a mile west of the village a mound which some thought a product of nature, but which others believed to be a burial place or ceremonial dais constructed by prehistoric tribes. This mound, the villagers said, was constantly haunted by two Indian figures which appeared in alternation. An old man who paced back and forth along the top from dawn till dusk, regardless of the weather and with only brief intervals of disappearance, and a squaw who took his place at night with a blue flame torch that glimmered quite continuously till morning. When the moon was bright, the squaw's peculiar figure could be seen fairly plainly, and over half the villagers agreed that the apparition was headless. Local opinion was divided as to the motives and relative ghostliness of the two visions. Some held that the man was not a ghost at all, but a living Indian who had killed and beheaded the squaw for gold and buried her somewhere on the mound. According to these theorists, he was pacing the eminence through sheer remorse, bound by the spirit of his victim, which took visible shape after dark. But other theorists, more uniform in their spectral beliefs, held that both man and woman were ghosts, the man having killed the squaw and himself as well at some very distant period. This is, you know, this is our basic story here. You know, this is the legend that goes around here. There's two ghosts, a ghost that haunts it during the day, which is just this Native American guy, and a ghost that haunts it at night. And I, I, I was so drawn in by this immediately because I love kind of Old West ghost stories. And I know that this is sort of 
all the premise there was when Lovecraft went into the story, right? Yeah. Delia just said, I know of this ghost story. And that was pretty much it, right? And that was it. And so Lovecraft took that and, and ran. Our ethnologist gets on a train. He goes to, to Binger and he finds some local people that he's going to stay with who are the Comptons, this Mr. Compton. And with him lives, it's his mother, but they call her Grandma Compton. That is, of course, we said Sally Compton from The Curse of Yig, who is the one that finds the whole catastrophe. For, for many years, everybody in town has seen these ghosts. You know, like everybody knows that they, there's no question that they've seen at night, they see the blue flame. And at day, they see this Indian guy going up there. Yeah, it's always there. It happens every day. It's always there. Yeah. Which is really cool. And it's, it's like, well, of course, why haven't then anybody go, going to check it out? And people do. When they get close to it during the day, the guy just kind of disappears. You know, they don't see him. Anymore. It's infuriating. It might, it looks maybe like he steps down off of the mound, but then when they get up there, right. there's no, there's nowhere he could Nothing. have had cover. So he just sort of disappears, yeah. but it's not in such a spectacular manner. I mean, he just, it's just frustrating. They get up there and he's just gone. It's almost like a mirage. Right. Looks like you can see it from far away and the closer you get, it, it's not there. There's one story, there's a, many stories about people that actually have gone up there and try to figure out what's going on, you know, like dig it up and, and, and see what happens. Yeah. The first of these was um, in 1891 where there's this guy named Heaton. So Heaton suspected that there was gold up in that mound mm -hmm. and he was going to get it. So Heaton uh, went up there with a shovel one day. People were saying, you know, that's cursed up there. You better not go. And he's like, ah, psh, whatever. And so he goes up there with his shovel and just disappears. They're watching him when he goes up on top of the mound and they see his figure just kind of slowly melt away, which is crazy. He turns invisible up on top of the hill and they're just like, whoa, I can't believe that happened. People kind of go back into town. This happens. About two hours after nightfall, he staggered into the village, minus his spade and other belongings, and burst into a shrieking monologue of disconnected ravings. He howled of shocking abysses and monsters, of terrible carvings and statues, of inhuman captors and grotesque tortures, and of other fantastic abnormalities too complex and chimerical even to remember. Old, 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 he would moan over and over again. Great God, they are older than the earth and came here from somewhere else. They know what you think and make you know what they think. Their half-man, half-ghost cross the line, melt and take shape again, getting more and more so, yet we're all descended from them in the beginning. Children of Tulu, everything made of gold, monstrous animals, half-human, dead slaves, madness, yeah! Shub-Niggereth, that white man, oh my God, what they did to him. That's so cool. At, at this point, I was so ready to love this story. Oh, man. Uh, there's a, I was, a I was great hooked. ghost element with the, what's going on between this man and this woman. And then we get into the Lovecraft stuff and the guy coming back and being crazy. This is really going to unfold oh, in yeah. some fascinating way. Yeah. And so this guy, he, he became the village idiot for eight years after that. Yeah, he was ruined by his experience up in the mound. It destroyed him. And he just died of natural causes. Do you think that the old village idiot was jealous? Because you really can only have one village idiot. Yeah, because then you're not the village idiot anymore. You're just the yeah. guy, one, another guy who's not very smart. Right. <laughs> People watch and pay attention, and then a couple other guys went up there, just disappeared, never came back. Yeah. You know, nothing happened with those guys. In 1910, some other fellows went up there, just disappeared, never came back. Nobody ever saw them again. In 1915, there was two eastern guys. Guys came in from the east coast, mm -hmm. and they were going to find out what was going on. Disappeared. At that point, I started to go, okay, okay, I get it. But I although it. The, the, the next uh, thing they tell about Captain yes. Lawton... Captain uh, Lawton... Grabbed my interest again. 
So Captain Lawton was this guy who he was an old pioneer, like grizzled yeah. guy, and he was retired. And he he has known about this myth, and he's and he was determined to go find out what it was. And he goes, you know, I know all the myths. I know all, all about Native Americans. I'm more well-armed than all these other yokels that went up there. I'm ready to handle this. So he goes up there, gone. He disappears, but then this happens. For over a week, no tidings of him reach Binger. And then, in the middle of the night, there dragged itself into the village the object about which dispute still rages. It said it was, or had been, Captain Lawton. But it was definitely younger by as much as 40 years than the old man who had climbed the mound. Its hair was jet black, and its face, now distorted by nameless fright, free from wrinkles. But it did remind Grandma Compton most uncannily of the captain as he had looked back in 89. Its feet were cut off neatly at the ankles, and the stumps were smoothly healed to an extent almost incredible if the being really were the man who had walked upright a week before. It babbled of incomprehensible things, and kept repeating the name, George Lawton, George E. Lawton, as if trying to reassure itself of its own identity. The things it babbled of, Grandma Compton thought, were curiously like the hallucinations of poor young Heaton in 91, though there were minor differences. The blue light, the blue light, muttered the object. Always down there, before there were any living things older than the dinosaurs, Always the same, only weaker, never death. Brooding and brooding and brooding. The same people, half man and half gas. The dead that walk and work. Oh, those beasts, those half-human unicorns. Houses and cities of gold. Old, 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 older than time. Came down from the stars. Great Tulu, Azathoth, Nyarlathotep. Waiting, waiting. The object died before dawn. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's great. I know. That is so crazy. That detail that his feet are gone at the ankle and it's sort of, the stumps are very smooth. Yeah. He's been gone a week. They're totally smooth. But he's, and he's, he's young. 40 years younger. He's 40 years younger. What happened? Oh my God. This is so cool. <laughs> I know. I thought that was so great. Oh my gosh. It was, this is is so fresh to me. Like I've never heard a story like that before. And mm-hmm. it was it blew my mind. I was so excited. Mm-hmm. I almost got on the phone and called you, Chad, when I was reading this, going, This story is so cool. Yeah, I know. I, I was when I was reading this part of it too, I thought this is really this is great. But not anymore. Well well let's just keep going. <laughs> let's keep going. So then we talked to good old Grey Eagle, who is a Wichita mm-hmm. chieftain. And now if you remember, Grey Eagle is the, the character from Yig. And he was the one that told him about the Yig stories. And, of course, uh, Grey Eagle pops up and talks about Yig some more. And talks Grey about Eagle's people. a little sensitive about his name, by the way. <laughs> Used to be Black Eagle, but <laughs> people, people are mean among the Wichita. <laughs> he's old, but he's really old. They say he's, like, over 100 years old, and he's still kicking, you know, like, not, yeah. not getting tired. He's proud of his age, but he's a little vain. But he basically says, you know, don't go up there. It's mm. it's trouble. It's bad medicine. That's what yeah, you saying. bad medicine. You let him loan, white man. <laughs> you let him loan. <laughs> then there's a few more stories. Uh, these two other guys go down there, Joe Norton and Rance Wheelock. Of course, they don't take the chief's advice, and then they go check it out. Of course, they disappear. Never seen again. It remained unvisited. Nobody bothered the place from 19... 19- 
1916 to 1919, because obviously the war was sort of a big deal and people weren't doing anything. And then, of course, the Clay boys, two brothers, went out to check out the mystery of the mound, and they thought there was some gold in there. And again, I, I felt like this was getting repetitive. Like, I get it, I get it. And then I this thing with Ed Clay was so cool. Yeah, it's super cool. The two brothers go out there. They disappeared. Nobody has seen him for a while. Ed comes back, the older brother. His hair's turned white. He's said, I've seen some things. There were Indians down in that mound. And they're not, they're not Wichita's. They're they're not any like any kind of Indian that you've ever seen before. I'm feeling a little upset right now, so I'm gonna take this pad and paper and write down what I saw. And oh, this automatic pistol, and I'm gonna take that upstairs with me, <laughs> and just kind of write down what happened to me because I have to process this. Yeah, everybody thinks okay. We're really happy to see you, but <laughs> go have your nap. So he goes upstairs for his nap, and uh, of course a gunshot rings out, and yeah. uh, he, he killed himself. But he left a note. A very polite suicide note. Very polite suicide note. But yeah. he wrote a bunch of papers and then burned them. And then this is the suicide note's the only thing that he left. And it says, For God's sake, near go near that mound. It is part of some kind of a world so devilish and old it cannot be spoke about. Me and Walker went and was took into the thing, just melted at times and made up again. And the whole world outside is helpless alongside what they can do. They what live forever young as they like, and you can't tell if they're really men or just ghosts. And what they do can't be spoken about, and this is only one entrance. You can't tell how big the whole thing is. After what we've seen, I don't want to live anymore. France was nothing besides this. And see that people always keep away. Oh, God, they would if they could see poor Walker like he was in the end. Yours truly, Ed Clay. Ed's dead. And they do an autopsy on poor old Ed, and they find out, uh, this is very strange, his organs have been moved around in his body. <laughs> yeah. They're on opposite sides. It's as if he was turned into What? And again, I was like, what? That is so cool. I agree. And, you know, I felt, and I still feel, that had this story been a little more like the music of Eric Zahn, it could have been pulled off excellently. Because the same thing happens here where Eric Zahn had written what actually happened to him. Right. Pages all flew out the window so you never really know. And you're just left with, I walked into something crazy. Yeah. If the rest of the story were contained on those pages that went into the fire, <laughs> and all we got was that there's ghosts on the mound and that people are coming out with their organs transposed and, and uh, younger with parts of their bodies mangled, that, I, I, it's horrifying and not knowing any of the actual things you know, about the whole underground society, why it happened is far better than the information that we get later. In my it opinion. Is, it is. Absolutely. And that's the last of uh, the stories. You know, nobody has gone up there since, uh, since then. And since our American Indian ethnologist is coming to town. By the way, I can't blame anybody for going up there. I mean, I, I would absolutely. Oh yeah. Sure. I would never believe that there were real ghosts up there. I mean, there's gotta be something to it. Yeah. He's playing a prank. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I, which it made it kind of interesting to me that, Everybody else felt that way, too, so there were, except the people, obviously, that seen so many people get hurt, but there's just waves of people going up and going away and going up and going away, and it, that, that process is pretty, it's pretty cool, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just one skeptic going after another. Captain takes him out and shows him at night, uh, points over at the mound, and he can see the blue flame moving back yeah. and forth across it, and it's like, wow, it's, it's real. There is, yeah. you know, this isn't just a myth. The second chapter kicks in, and the really nothing much happens. He gets ready to go up on the mound. He gets some shovels and some equipment. Of course, he sees there's an Indian up there, a Native American. Yeah. This is during the day he goes up. He looks through his binoculars, and he can see that this guy is not your typical Indian. 
he talks about the shape of his head. Most modern Indians have a round head. Old Pueblo Native Americans that they've only found in the fossil records that have kind of long shaped skulls. Mm-hmm. And these guys have long sh- this this guy who's walking around has this long shaped skull. Yeah, so he's, he's like Brainiac or something. But also he's wearing these crazy decorative robes that aren't your typical Native American design. He's never seen anything like it before. And he's carrying a short sword, which Native Americans don't have swords. There were Stone Age technology guys. Stone Age guys don't have that. So it's a big yeah. deal. And he's like, this guy is a product of a civilization, not a savage. Some ethnologist, as if Native Americans aren't part of a civilization. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so he decides he's going to go talk to Grey Eagle because he needs to get a little bit more info on this. Grey Eagle basically tells him, don't go up there. It's, it's a pain in the butt. It's bad medicine. Same stuff he's always been saying. Yes, exactly. This is the first indication that things are going south for me because at least three times in this chapter they repeat information that I already know. Since Grey Eagle knows that he's going to go up there no matter what, he pulls out this medallion that he had in his pouch and he gives it to him. And it's a little metal disc and it's on a leather strap. It's about two inches in diameter. And Grey Eagle says, my father's father gave this to him and it might keep the old ones away. It might not, but... Hopefully it'll give you an edge and you'll be all right. Yeah, well, it's a little bit of uh, it's a little Dracula action. If you if you have to go up to that castle, take this cross. As Grey Eagle tells him about it, he puts it around the guy's our ethnologist's neck and takes a look at it. One side, so far as I could see, had borne an exquisitely modeled serpent design, whilst the other side had depicted a kind of octopus or other tentacled monster. There were some half-effaced hieroglyphs too of a kind which no archaeologist could identify or even place conjecturally. Yig on one side, Cthulhu on the other. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a monster sandwich. It is a little monster sandwich, bringing in the mythos, the Cthulhu mythos stuff into this, obviously. He thanks Grey Eagle, and he goes on up. Now he's got his equipment. He's making his trek up there. He's got a shovel. He's got his pick. He's got a trench knife. He's got little lights. It's a whole kind of A-team moment where he's, you know, getting his all of his gear on and, you know, getting ready. <laughs> he's going to yeah. go t- check this stuff out. So he gets up there, sees the guy again. He can see that the dude has an unshaved face. But when, this is one of the things that what? annoyed me where he says, I fancied I could trace an expression of infinite evil and decadence on his on his seemed hairless face. <laughs> I know. What is that expression? <laughs> what is infinite evil and decadence? What? I'm sure I've made that expression at some oh, point. Oh, yeah, of course. Of infinite evil and decadence? I'm sure you have. As he gets closer to it, the guy disappears. He can't see him. So he gets up on there, and he gives a description of how big it is, how big this mound is, and mm-hmm. whatever. I'm not particularly interested in this part of the story, to be <laughs> frank. Uh, <laughs> this is where I started getting a little bored. And uh, he's out there working. He just starts clearing off the brush, digging around, trying to figure out. Now, that's dangerous, though. I had a little anxiety for him because people who have gone up there, we, we, I don't know if we mentioned, but there's a lot of people who have gone up to the mound and nothing happened to them. Yeah. Which is what makes it especially frustrating. So some people have gone up, they just don't see anything, and then they go back down. Now, if they start cutting around the brush or digging... That's when Bad they go away. Yeah. So we're thinking, yeah, maybe at this point he's going he's gonna to get it. Mm-hmm. But no, he spends the whole afternoon up there. Not much is going on. He finds that there's sort of this bowl section. It's kind of like a big scoops into the ground. Right. So he starts digging around there, and he finds this buried cylinder, this buried metal cylinder. And what's strange about it is that his necklace is magnetically pulled towards this cylinder. Yeah, like a dowsing rod. Like a dowsing rod, yeah. And that, in fact, that's how he kind of finds it, is because mm-hmm. his necklace is sort of moving around on its own accord. It's being pulled, and he digs yeah. it up, and he cleans it off, and he looks at it. It's got all these hieroglyphs and things on there, and it's got 
freaking Thulu on there. Cthulhu's on there. He's looking at trying to figure out what it is. And then he realizes that you can open it. And then he kind of starts trying to pry it open. And then he sees, oh, wait, you can actually unscrew it. So he unscrews it and there's all this parchment in there. And it's written in Spanish. Uh, I'm not going to murder the Spanish here, but basically no. this it's the narrative of this guy called Zamacona Nunez, who is a gentleman of Spain. And he was on the expedition with Coronado in 1540. And it's like, what? Yeah. What's that? that? Huh? That's strange. I don't understand what's going on. But the light starts to die down because the day's ending and he decides to pack up and he's going to leave his, his uh, shovel and his and his pick there and just take all of his other equipment with him. And he tells Clive Compton about what he saw and what happened in this object. And he says, if he would have known what he knows now, now he's talking the past, tense, if he knows what he knows now, he would have not messed with this at all because the symbol on there, Tulu, is actually Cthulhu. Yeah. And he knows Cthulhu at this point, you know, of him going back and telling the story. Now in his life, he knows that Cthulhu is, you know, bad medicine. And yeah, he never would bad have had anything to do with it. And Yig, of course, is connected with Quetzalcoatl and all that stuff. But he doesn't say why he knows it or how he knows all this stuff about Cthulhu, but he just does. And then he goes upstairs and he says, you know, I, my Spanish is pretty bad. I wish I had a dictionary, but I'm going to try and translate this, this script. He does an amazing job if he has bad Spanish. Yeah. It's a very he, nuanced account. He really does. And then that's the end of chapter two. And I think that's where we're yeah. going to end this uh, episode today, Jim. It is. No, now I'll say that if the story up to this point is fantastic. Yeah, I love in it. In a lot of ways. There's a little repeti- repetition in it, but um, this discovery of the cylinder and that there's going to be this account from and and the you know the account has a title, doesn't it? It says Yeah, the narrative uh, concerning the subterranean world of Zinzanian AD uh, 1545. Yeah. And of course, that's strange because uh, the expedition ended in, in uh, 42. Right. So he's like, wait, how? why would he be there three years after the expedition left? That's, yeah. that's bizarre. And it begs for the reader to please believe the things that are written therein. So we know we're going to get some kind of historical account of things that happened underneath that mound. Right. And that's kind of where things go south. Because once you start yeah. explaining it, it's never as good as the mystery. Unfortunately, uh, we're both going to be traveling. So this is our first part of the story. We're going to pick it up again after a week off. In that time, if anybody has some thoughts about the rest of the story, they want to write to us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anything about it that you found interesting or background. You know, let's crowdsource this a little bit. Because i got to be honest, I didn't care for a lot of what happens after this point in the story. Yeah. But if you all know of, of things that are interesting about it or things that we should call out in the next episode, please write us and let us know be very interested to hear what other people think of it and uh and that's all we've got for today yeah i want to thank uh, jimmy for doing our reading uh yeah great job and thanks for the stuff again it's really cool yeah please go to our website and look at the links to jimmy's uh, blog where he's got photos of the actual because we didn't mention it at the top but there are some real places the story is based on there's a ghost mound out there yeah there's two mounds that possibly the story is based on and he's got photos of those and Uh so a lot of information in Binger, yeah. Yeah, in Binger, he's got photos of or Binger, in, so you can uh, see in it. Yeah. Caddo County. Yeah, you got to check it out. So yeah. please come to our site and check that out. Again, we have the soundtrack uh, on sale if you want to make a donation, and we've got some other great stuff coming up. So just keep coming to the blog and checking it out, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Great. I'm uh, Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. <laughs>